Welcome to the Travel Like a Boss podcast, where we interview location-independent entrepreneurs that travel the world like a boss by being their own boss. Here's your host, Johnny FD. Hey everyone, this is Johnny and welcome to episode 188 of the Travel Like a Boss podcast. I'm here today with Warm Heart Worldwide founder, Dr. Michael Schaefer. Welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much. I'm really pleased to be here. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited. If you guys haven't heard of the burning season in Chiang Mai, it is terrible. <laughs> it is the reason why we had this chat today and what we're going to be talking about uh, today as a actual solution to burning season, which is something that I didn't think was going to be possible. Yeah. I mean, the big problem that we face in Chiang Mai is that everybody has short-term temporary solutions like stopping people from barbecuing and shooting water up in the air and so on. But it doesn't do anything to address the real problem. Um, the real problem is that there is a huge amount of smoke. And unless you put out the fires, you ain't going to get rid of the smoke. Well, nobody's thought about how to put out the fires um, until now until now and, and so just to give everyone a backstory on why you guys should care about this this subject if you've been looking at all into either moving to chiang mai or using this as like a home base the very first thing that you're going to read is don't come between maybe february and april on the beginning of april because of the burning season which is basically pollution smoke pollution in the sky and most of that comes from farmers burning the crops. Well, actually, not most of it. I mean, to be fair, here in Chiang Mai itself, we live in a basin surrounded by mountains. And those mountains are covered by forests. And those forests get burned by extremely poor people because they now have an international market for the mushrooms that come up after the... Um, fire has burned over. And it's a lot easier to see little brown mushrooms against uh, black ash than it is to see little brown mushrooms against leaf litter. So every year, the mountains around Chiang Mai burn, and a lot of smoke comes down in here, because in Chiang Mai, we live in an inversion. The rest of North Thailand, however, um, sees a tremendous amount of burning from farmers who are burning their crops in order to clear the field. So if you grow corn, for example, 63% of what you grow is just stalk, and it stands there in your field. And if you're poor and don't have a tractor, cutting it all down by hand is more work than you want to engage in. Um, and so... You know, what's the solution? Well, it's Mr. Bick. One click and it's all gone. Unfortunately, the smoke follows us everywhere. Yeah, actually, it wasn't until today that we, we sat down that I realized that the, I mean, to be honest, I've never been a farmer. I've never really <laughs> spent much <laughs> That's time. That's okay. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny, not everybody wants to be a farmer. Yeah, but you know what? We all want to eat. So yeah, they're, well, they're going to be vital. And nowadays, you know, so many things are made from either corn products or uh, other products are growing, that it's going to affect us either way. So the solution isn't to tell people to stop farming. The solution is not to tell people to you know stop burning. The solution is to find an alternative. Right. And that's really what we've tried to do. I mean, at, at Warm Heart, 
we're not really an environmental organization. What we really are is a community development organization. So as an organization, we are very concerned about climate change because here in North Thailand, climate change is raising the temperature radically. And the hotter it gets, the harder it is to work out of doors. Last year, where we work, we had seven straight weeks where for every single day, the temperature was over 42 degrees centigrade. That's about 105 degrees Fahrenheit. And that's very uncomfortable. Uh, yeah, I can tell you, I worked out of doors every day, and it was absolutely awful. Besides that, the rains stop, or the rain it rains too much, too violently. It's very unpredictable. It's very difficult. Farming is becoming a huge trial. So we are interested in slowing down climate change. We are really interested in stopping climate change. We object as people who live in the developing world to the whole Paris concept of the developed world, where the only idea is how do we reduce the amount of carbon dioxide that we're adding to the atmosphere? The damn atmosphere is too full already. What's the idea about slowing it down? We down here in the developing world who are dying of climate change want to see the climate cooled down, which requires removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So before we actually dive too deep into that, I, I want everyone to kind of just realize from even just like a personal point of view, right? Let's say, yeah, let's yeah. say you guys don't give a crap about the environment. We're well, not thinking that far ahead. You're just thinking, what's, this, what's in this for me? I mean, right now, it, it's, it's one of those things where, you know, Especially everyone listening to this podcast probably has a dream to either come to Chiang Mai or, you know, go somewhere similar to this, you know, wherever it is in the world. You want to go somewhere with clean air, beautiful nature. You want to be able to walk, you know, go into a walkable city and just really enjoy yeah. life. And one of the biggest downsides to Chiang Mai is every year between February and April, uh, usually kind of the end of and mid to end of February and middle of April. Everybody has to leave Chiang Mai. And if it wasn't for that, the digital nomad community would be even bigger and stronger here because people yeah. would, would stay year, year around. So many people leave during those months because what you get when you light a lot of fires is a lot of smoke. And it sucks. And it really sucks. And, you know, there's, there's going to be people, I, it, it drives me nuts. I, I, I have people, you know, ask me, they're like, hey, Johnny, you know, you've been living here for five years. You know, what's burning season really like? And I tell them it sucks. <laughs> you know, get out of here. And they're like, yeah, but I read online some forums, some Facebook group that's not that bad, that, you know, X, Y, Z. And I look at them. I'm like, you know, first off, like, there's a lot of people that don't think smoking cigarettes is that bad. Right. You know, and, <laughs> and this is so much worse. You can't imagine it. Yeah. Right. And I'm like, if you had the choice, why would you be here during that that time? And here's the thing is there's a lot of people that don't have that choice where they can't leave. You know, people either are, you know, are local type people that have their families here, or their jobs here, or they're too poor to be able to, to, you know, travel for two months or three months and get out of here or even go down to the islands. As digital nomads, you know, we have that luxury. So we're able to kind of bounce around. But even for us, you know, it's still a big, you know, annoyance that we can't be here year round. But for everyone else who can't leave, even, even if you're just like an English teacher, or if you're working here as a normal job, it's one of those things that you kind of have to suffer through. And it's not, it really isn't good for anybody. It's not good for the economy. It's not good for, the, for your health. It's not, it's not good for anyone. Yeah. No, I mean, 
you really you have to understand the smoke stuff, right? I mean, we are not talking about cigarette smoke. Cigarette smoke gives you cancer because the particles are big enough that they get stuck in your lung, irritate the hell out of the lung lining, and eventually get cancerous, right? The particles that you breathe here, so-called PM 2.5, are so small, they actually go right through the wall of your lungs into the bloodstream. And then they lodge in your brain and your liver or whatever, right? So when you breathe the smoke here and you get sick, it's not necessarily that you're going to get lung cancer. You may die of a stroke. You may die of a heart attack. You may die of liver cancer. All sorts of other things are associated with breathing this smoke. So some people say that, you know, oh, well, what if you just stay indoors and use the eight your filter on your air conditioning more often? Or some people, when they are outdoors, they use a mask, like a 3M mask. Uh, what are your thoughts on those? Well, I mean, give me a break. <laughs> you know, how lame is it to stay indoors all the time, right? Especially, I mean, Johnny's got this fantastic view out of his windows here. But during the, during the real smoke season, you can't see the mountains. They are completely covered. You can't see the house next door. Airplanes sometimes do not land at the airport because they can't see the bloody runway and radar can't go through the, the, the smoke. Um, sure, you can wear a mask if you don't mind feeling like you're suffocating all the time. Try exercising with a mask on. Let me just tell you, it sucks really big time. Well, the funniest argument I've heard is some people saying, well, it's not as bad as Beijing. Oh, yeah. Well, right. Sure. There's dying and dying slowly. You know, it's like, okay. I mean, have you ever seen a picture of Beijing? I mean, people bump into each other in the middle of the day because they can't see each other. It's like bloody London in, in 1890. I mean, okay, fine. You know, if you want to go back, you know, a hundred plus years, that's just great. If that's your benchmark, then power to you. But that's no way to live. That's just too lame for me. And I definitely agree. And to be honest, as a digital nomad, as somebody who can afford to just go down to the islands for a few months or hop over to Australia or to Europe and just kind of ignore the problem, it doesn't affect us as much as, you know, it's just an annoyance or a hindrance. But being here and kind of seeing it happen year after year after year and people complaining about it, people coughing, getting sick from it. And then hearing about the villagers and the people that can't leave, you know, just literally dying or, or developing health problems from it, it made me think there has to be a solution to this. There has yeah. to be something else. And look, a lot of that is what drove me. I mean, I run a small organization out in the country. Out in the country, it's the smoke season pretty much all the time. Here in Chiang Mai, you get it once a year. Out in the countryside, we get it all the time because there's always a crop to burn. There's always something to burn, okay? But nothing, I will tell you, nothing pisses me off more than listening to everybody complaining in Chiang Mai about the smoke season and then leaving and bloody doing nothing about it. Nothing pisses me off more than listening to the government talk BS about how they're going to solve the problem this year and then having long meetings about it with exactly the same people every year, year after year, saying the same stupid academic stuff. And I can say that, by the way, because I spent 30 years as a professor, stupid academic stuff and not doing anything. So I said to myself, look, 
we're an organization. Our job is to help communities. Communities are getting too hot. They're dying of this bad stuff. They've got all sorts of other problems because of this, and they're poor as hell. What can we do that can solve the smoke problem and can roll all of these other problems into a solution? And we came up with one. So before we get into that solution, I want to hear more about your backstory. You said you were a professor for a while. Um, like, where did where are you actually from? Like, how what brought you here? <laughs> well, I'm I must be an awful lot like a lot of your previous guests because you know I I I just gave up on my old life. I spent 30 years as a professor, five years as a teaching fellow at Harvard, then 25 years as a professor at Rutgers University. I taught politics to generation after generation of really wonderful young people. I love teaching at at Rutgers because. Most of my students were from families that were first person in their family to go to university. They were foreign born. I mean, they were real new Americans. They were the people who were going to build, you know, a new and better America. But, you know, there came a point where I had done everything you could do at a university. There came a point at which I couldn't stand working for other people another minute. Um, you know, and frankly, I have a short attention span, you know? I mean, I wanted to do, I didn't want to keep doing the same thing over and over again. I wanted to do something really new and big. So I hit 55. I had 25 years in the system. I had free health care for life. And I said, I'm out of here. And I ended up in North Thailand with absolutely nothing. My wife and I took every penny we had, sold our possessions, you know, gave stuff away, came here, invested everything we had in this small organization. And I've been here nine and a half years, and we've just had the most amazing life ever. Wow. So what made you choose Thailand and specifically the north of Thailand? Have you have you been here on vacation before or what, what drew you here? Well, it's kind of funny. You know, I was here back in 86 during the Khmer Rouge years because I had sent some of my students to work in the camps. And then I didn't think about didn't think about Thailand at all. But then there was a tsunami. And the president of my university asked me to go to Thailand because the president of a Thai university was a graduate of Rutgers. And he said, this guy called me up on the phone and president to president asked me, could I send help? I'm sending you. <laughs> and so 36 hours after the um, tsunami, I was on the beach looking at the damage done and within two or three weeks, I had Rutgers students there working on all sorts of different projects. That really worked for me. I had been all over the world working on community development projects. And every time I said to my wife, this would be a great place for us to go and set up after I retired, she would say, no, no, no guns, no bombs, no landmines, no bodyguards, no, and you know, every place I was working in like Lebanon, Bosnia, Herzegovina, you know, no place where you'd really want to go and retire. So Thailand was cool. Then in 2007, I ran a training for young women who had been trafficked into the sex trade to teach them how to start small organizations to stop the trade. And some of them came up to me during the training and said, Ajahn Schaefer, Professor Schaefer, they said, you know, nobody around here really understands this whole business. They said, we knew what we were doing. You know, you don't understand that it's not about sex. It's about poverty. They said, 
Just imagine poverty so awful that you would do this as a way to help your family out of it. If you want to start something new, if you want to change something, you start an NGO, a non-governmental organization that will help raise families out of this. So I said to them, okay, tell me what to do. And 11 months later, we started Warm Heart. Wow, that's amazing. And I, and I do agree that you know, as much as we don't want to hear capitalism being the answer, a lot of times having the power of being able to you know, pay bills or buy land or start a business and that entrepreneurship really is a big, big key to you know, regaining that power and, and being able to just live your own life. Yeah, well, listen, I mean, people always make a critical distinction between social value and social wealth. Social value is the stuff of wealth, right? So it's like being able to go to the hospital. It's being able to buy food or whatever, right? That's value. But social wealth is having the capacity to make more money, right? If you don't have wealth, if you don't have investable capital, if you cannot make things for yourself, you are screwed, right? Otherwise, you are dependent on others to give you stuff, right? And that is what the whole system has been for the past 50, 60, 100 years. It's been giving away money to help the little brown brothers, right? And it doesn't stick. It produces no lasting capacity in the community for people to be able to help themselves. Because when the donor gets tired of giving, and in general they get tired after about three years, the donations stop. And then what do you do? I mean, what do you do with a school with no teachers? What do you do with a clinic with no medicine? What do you do with computers when you got no network administrator, no electricity, no whatever, right? All of this stuff that comes in gets used up and it's finished. On the other hand, if you can come into a community and you can teach somebody to do something that they can sell to somebody outside the community, that person is maintaining jobs in the community. They are bringing income back into the community. That income gets spent inside the community. It puts other people to work. All of that makes for a better community. There are no rapacious capitalists in a village of 50 people. They're just people who eat a little bit better. And that's what we do. I love that. And that's honestly the, the main reason why I'm sitting here with you today and why I'm getting involved with Warm Heart Worldwide is because of, of really two reasons. One is, you know, these past four or five years, if you guys have been following my journey, you know, I've been the capitalist really just for myself, you know, making enough money so I can survive, so I can have somebody in in savings. And then the next, you know, stage after I had enough for myself was to be able to help my family, help my parents. And then now that I've been able to help them, you know, I have all this time on my hands and I'm like, okay, what can I do now with the skills that I've learned through e-commerce marketing or internet marketing to be able to help something that really matters? And to be honest, Warm Hearts wasn't the first NGO that I reached out to. I was actually trying to help a local it's a like a hill tribe e-commerce kind of business, also based in Chiang Mai, also run by, you know, very nice people who had good intentions. They're like, let's help, you know, these local villages 
by helping them sell their stuff. And the reason why, I, you know, I pretty much honestly just jumped ship with them because I, and I said, you know what, you guys are wasting my time, is they didn't have a sustainable model. Their their entire model was let's get a volunteer, you know, who wants to do good to drive three hours to the Hill Tribe to pick up, you know, three pieces of, of item, have someone else spend all day trying to convince someone, you know, almost through kind of guilt, you know, to buy it, <laughs> and then have someone else drive over and spend way too much money to ship it to the U.S., and eventually what happens, and I I, I, could, I saw it already just happening in front of my eyes, I, I, like, people just get tired of it, and, and you know, the, the volunteers get burnt out, the donors stop putting money in, and it just isn't a sustainable model, and with Warm Hearts Worldwide, I got really excited uh, when I first heard about what they were doing, uh, especially with the solution to the burning season. And actually, before we, we even get to the the next stage, let's first talk about what the solution to the burning really is and what biochar is. Well, the solution to the burning season isn't yet a solution. It's We've got all the pieces. We're working to the solution. We have a program we call 50 and 5. We assume that about 50% of the smoke in North Thailand, and in fact, across China, all of Southeast Asia, about 50% comes from farmers burning waste in their fields. So we said to ourselves, what would be a really ambitious target? And we said, let's get 50% of that smoke out of the air. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, there's just no way in God's green acres you can go out and arrest 50% of the farmers the way the government wants to do. You can't convince them to do it because there's no alternative for them. You can't pay them not to do it because there's not enough money to do that over the long term. So basically what we had to do is we had to find a way to make it profitable for them to do it on their own. And that's where we hit on what we call the biochar solution. And the biochar solution is to convince 50% of the farmers in whatever area we're in to convert their crop waste into biochar and sell it as a useful product instead of burning it. And we think we can do that in five years. We are just entering year two now. I know okay. you guys can do it. And to really put it in a kind of visual, simple, you know, fact is imagine, you know, a farmer, bunch of, you know, a bunch of crop waste, you know, things that at the end of the, the harvest season, you know, they're, they're left with like corn husks and other kind of just uh, raw kind of debris. And the easiest way to get rid of it is to just burn it. You know, they've been doing this for, what, hundreds of years probably right. or maybe longer? Oh, for, forever, right? But the problem has become acute now because of capitalism, world capitalism, right? I mean, and that's the interesting thing. Here we are, we're hell and gone up in the middle of nowhere in North Thailand. But there are thousands and thousands of hectares, acres of corn being grown. Why is it being grown? Because there are 
hundreds of millions of people around the world who are now rich enough to eat meat. And you can't grow meat unless you got feed. And corn is a really good animal feed. So the rising wealth of the world middle class is driving corn consumption, which is driving the production of massive amounts of corn around here and other crops elsewhere, right? So this problem didn't exist 10 years ago. 20 years ago. It was much smaller. It was just sort of, you know, the odd forest fire. Not anymore. Now it's every year forests for the mushrooms and cornfields, corn waste and other stuff. Yeah. And it's not just the meat. They're using corn for everything now. I think there's a documentary called King Corn or something that shows that corn is rich, really in everything in the world. And, you know, if you... You know, if you have your own chickens or even if you have some cows, that, at, you know, in your backyard, you have them, you know, just walk around, eat grass. That's not going to cause, you know, a, a big environmental impact. But the fact is when you have these feedlots, you know, of thousands of cows you and you don't have the room for them to graze, it's just much easier to buy corn or grain and send them in. So this is, you know, it's, it's you know, it's, it's a multi-level problem, right. but but it hits home here. Right. And we live we live with that. Right. We live with the fact of all of this corn waste having to be burned. Right. So people will burn it. Well, the question is, is there a way to convince them not to burn it? Well, you have to get rid of it. It turns out that if you take this corn waste and you put it in an old oil drum with a few holes in the bottom and a top that's properly arranged, you can light it at the top and it will pyrolyze, not burn, but pyrolyze all the way down, creating a very, very high quality char, charcoal called, which we call biochar. Now, that stuff is immensely valuable in a lot of ways. But before I get to the value of the biochar, let me tell you about making biochar. If you light a field on fire, you do a lot of different things. First, the fire will release carbon monoxide and carbon dioxide, which is what we call carbon neutral. In other words, those are things that the plant took out of the air with photosynthesis and used to create sugars and to create its own skeleton and so on and so forth. Nothing added, nothing taken away, just fine. The problem is that the farmer used nitrogen and sulfur-containing fertilizers to plant that stuff, and that, when it's burned very slowly in smoldering fires, forms nitrous oxide, nitrogen dioxide, sulfur dioxide, and so on. And those, and mainly methane, right, become huge, huge, huge greenhouse gases. Methane is 25 times more warming than is carbon dioxide. NOx, whether it's NO or N2O, they are <laughs> is unfortunately 298 times more warming than CO2. Also released is a lot of ammonia. If you take NOx and ammonia and other things, they are smog precursors. Up in the air, the sunlight hits them and they turn into ozone and other poisonous gases in the lower atmosphere, which causes 
smog, okay? So all of this is pretty bad. Then you've got the problem of the smoke. Slow smoldering fires produce huge amounts of what we call PM 2.5, particulate matter 2.5 microns wide. Now, you can take bunches of PM 10 and use it to make a necklace around a human hair. PM 2.5 will form a necklace around a PM 10 particle. <laughs> this stuff is really nasty. Even smaller is what they call black carbon, the tiniest black carbon particles. They don't stay in the atmosphere long, but if you've ever lain under a black blanket on a sunny day, you know how hot it gets. Imagine that dispersed through the atmosphere. How much heat from the sun is absorbed by that. Imagine what happens when you sprinkle that across the white snow of the Arctic or the Antarctic. Do you wonder why it melts pretty fast? So if you turn stuff to biochar instead of burning it, one, no smoke at all. Two, the methane is burned up. It never gets an a, a chance to get into the atmosphere. The NOx and the SOx, and the SOx, by the way, comes down as sulfuric acid, just to really think about how much fun it is, right? They break up in the heat. So basically making biochar out of crop waste instead of burning it eliminates all of these negative, and they are seriously negative climate and human health consequences of burning crop waste. So what I really like is the fact that even without thinking of the global impact, if we just, if everybody kind of just focused on like making a good local impact, it actually positively affects the, the whole world. And this is, you know, I think some people, they hear about things like climate change and they're like, okay, that's such a big problem. It's worldwide. What can I do about it? And they don't, they don't really focus on that. But here, if we just focus on, okay, something as selfish as I want to be able to stay in Chiang year round and breathe clean, fresh air. And if we, if we just focus on that, it also makes these big worldwide impacts, which are super positive. And now you might be thinking, okay, well, what's this going to cost? Is this, is this, this sounds complicated. But when I first heard about how you guys make biochar, how you teach farmers how to make it, it just made so much sense. Instead of burning you know, crops in an open field and having all the smoke and all the you know, bad stuff go out into the air and the atmosphere, all you're doing is you're helping them build a simple contraption where they, they, they burn in this you know, yeah. enclosed piece of metal and instead of having all that stuff go in the, in, in the atmosphere, it just produces these little bricks of biochar. Yeah, and it, it really is a contraption. I mean, this is an old oil drum, right? I mean, the whole we spent years figuring out how to make how to make really stupid machines i mean these machines cost almost nothing to make a farmer can make them in an hour and a half with tools and stuff he's got lying around the farm but you can use them yourself here in chiang mai one of the five star boutique hotels makes all of their own biochar by simply taking all of the bamboo that they cut on their, in their gardens, all of the bio crap that falls down from trees, and they turn it into biochar, 
and they use it, and they're no longer using pesticides. They're no longer using fertilizer, right? They're no longer sending this stuff off to get burnt. No, they're turning it into really good stuff. And anybody in Chiang Mai who has a yard and has leaves can do this and reduce the smoke themselves. So this is almost kind of like fast composting with through burning instead of having it take, you know, a lot of time and a lot of room to break to break things down. Yeah. I mean, basically, it will take you 45 minutes. If you have corn cop, which is what our farmers work with most, it takes about 40 to 45 minutes to convert an entire 200 liter, 55 gallon drum of corn cob into biochar. So, and, and, and the key here, right, is that we buy this stuff from people. It's not like we're saying, hey, man, why don't you go and collect all this corn cob and turn it into biochar? It's that we go to them and say, listen, you do this and we'll buy it from you. And in the dry season around here, there is no work. This is an agricultural area. If you want to work, you have to leave this area. Where I live, 65% of the adult population leaves for the South. You can imagine what it does socially. Here, we can say, okay, you finished the harvest now. Why don't you turn the mess into biochar and we'll pay you? You can stay home. No more absent parents. No more broken families. No more temptation to prostitutes, to drugs, to alcohol. No more problems with social dysfunction. You're here. And you can make a living wage doing this. I love it. Yeah, because the more jobs you can keep in villages, the more the villages stay intact. So instead of people having to go to the city or go to the tourist places just to find a job, uh, they can stay and work in their own village, which is great for everybody. So this actually is a really interesting point because, to be honest, the the first year when I heard about Warm Heart well, uh, and also the, heard about Biochar, it was exactly exactly a year ago. A year ago. Yeah, exactly a year ago. Uh, I was, you know, making pretty good money online. I, you know, I'm, I've been living in Chiang Mai and I really just want to be able to support. And I remember being in some random Facebook group, uh, either it was either a digital nomad Facebook group or probably a like expats, locals Facebook group. And I heard, you know, hear people talking about burning season again, like they do every single year. And every year people are complaining and bitching and there's arguments about, you know, how bad it really is when it starts. Yada, yada, yada. And I, and I remember getting so fed up, I wrote a reply saying, can you guys please stop bitching about this and do something about it? And then I asked myself, well, I can't just tell people to do that. <laughs> I have to do something about it myself. <laughs> right. So I started looking for a solution and I found that first part of what you had talked about where, hey, we can help farmers you know, build these contraptions. They can burn their crops. They can produce saleable you know, uh, biochar and then instantly everything is solved. And I honestly didn't think that much more about the, the next stages, but that was enough for me. That right. was enough for me to open my checkbook. And I donated, I think I donated a, like a couple hundred bucks up front. And then I signed up for like a reoccurring plan where I donate every month. And I was really excited. And I was like, okay, making a difference. I'm happy. Uh, spread, you know, spread the word a bit. And then this year, you know, I was like, okay, burning season is coming again. Let me see what they've been up to, what the updates were, and let me open my checkbook again. But then when I saw, you know, the website kind of not updated and I saw, um, you know, the like the 
it wasn't a GoFundMe, it was a CrowdRise campaign. And I, and I saw, okay, you know, what do we, where's my money actually going? And that's when I wrote to, you know, whatever it was, info at uh, Warm, Hearts, Warm Hearts Worldwide. And I said, hey, I'm an ex-donor. I'm, I want to donate again. But, you know, that like there's there's no information. There's there's like, like Wait, what is Where's this going? Where's this going? Yeah. And I did it not just from a personal, you know, standpoint because I'm like, oh, I'm just probably one of many donors. It's not that big of a deal. They probably won't miss me. But I thought, hey, if I, you know, I'm feeling this way. I wonder how many other people are feeling this way. And that's when I reached out, not even really sure if you guys would even reply, but the fact that, you know, your co-founder, your wife, uh, Evelyn, you know, replied and really enthusiastically, you drove out here from, you know, hours away. You sent your whole team out here. We had a four hour meeting, (laughs) uh, you know, about what can we do to, you know, better, better communicate with our donors, make a bigger impact and really be able to make a bigger difference. That's when I knew, Hey, you know, these guys are, these guys are legit. They're, they're really, you know, their hearts are in the right place and they actually have a great plan. They just needed a little bit of that internet marketing kind of pizzazz that probably most of them, you know... Yeah, well, folks. I mean, you know, when you spend 30 years as a professor of political science, it's not like you're really up to date on internet marketing, Johnny. You know, I mean, that, that's really the problem. You know, so literally the first thing I did when I got there and Johnny challenged me, said, where's this thing going? You know, and I said, oh, well, you know, it's a five-year plan. And last year we had to overcome all of the doubts. Everybody told us, farmers are never going to do this. This is bullshit, Schaefer. Forget it. It's a waste of time. So the first thing we had to do is to prove that if we provided a market for farmers, that they would happily turn their crop waste into biochar and not burn it. And boy, did we discover they would. By the end of three months, we had 15,000 bags of biochar. And then the question is, well, what the hell do you do with this much charcoal? I mean, we're looking at each other thinking, God damn, what are you doing now? You know? And so already nine months ago, we were asking ourselves. So okay, back up a second. And that's what the original crowdfunding campaign was about. Where do we, a really small NGO, raise the money to put on the table to be able to say to farmers in this area that produces huge amounts of smoke, we wanted to be able to put on the table all the, all the barrels they were going to need and to say to them, we will buy every kilogram of biochar you make. Go for it. Let's see what will happen, right? Well, well. <laughs> we got a lot of bags of biochar out of it. But at the end, we then face the question of what do you do with this stuff? And there is no local market for biochar or really for biochar products. So the next challenge then was to create a value-added product market for biochar products. So we've been experimenting for the last nine months coming up with uh, high quality fertilizers, soil amendments, you know, foliar sprays that you can put onto the leaves of your growing plants, sustainable um, charcoal briquettes that don't smoke when you light them, don't smell, you know, um, all sorts of, all sorts of products. So there's actually a ton of benefits of biochar that 
we'll get into in a second, but I just want to really highlight that number of that 15,000 bags of biochar that was produced last year. Each bag was, what, seven kilos or so? Five to seven kilos? So, uh, probably somewhere between, yeah, roughly around seven, seven kilos or so. So that's over 100,000 kilos of smoke that didn't go into the atmosphere, you know, and to put that into pounds. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, yeah, well, multiply by 2.2. Yeah, that's almost right? a quarter million pounds of, you know, what would have went in the atmosphere that is now captured into something. Right, and it, just, it, never, it never existed as smoke. We didn't have to physically remove it from the air, which is an incredibly expensive and difficult task. And that's where everybody's focused, right? Everybody's focused on how do you extract CO2 from the atmosphere that's already there? How do you extract smoke from the air that's already there? Forget it. It's too hard to do. The main thing you can do is make sure it never gets there. And that's what this process does. Yeah, I'm I'm a big believer of that. I mean, I've always been about, you know, going to the core prevention. Yeah, I mean, you know, even with off off topic, you know, all the other problems in the world, right? So we have, you know, plastics in the ocean. It's expensive to get plastics out of the ocean. If somebody's focused on that, please just figure out a way, you know, to get people to stop throwing plastic in the ocean in the first place or start, you know, stop producing so much. You know, with the air, instead of trying to figure out with expensive, complicated machinery to extract that CO2, let's just prevent people from burning it or creating, creating it in the first place. And that's why I was so excited. And the first year, honestly, I was very happy to donate because I'm like, okay, I can see this. It costs X amount of money to build one of these contraptions. About, and it was cheap. It was like, what, 65 bucks per, you know, per, machine. per machine. And, you know, farmers probably aren't going to, you know, you know, because you know farmers don't make very much money, especially in Thailand. Yeah. So they're not especially gonna, not in the countryside. Yeah. So to them, that's a lot of money. So they're probably not going to do it themselves. But if we can raise some money to, you know, you say, you know what, I can afford sixty five bucks. Let me help fund one of these contraptions for one of these farmers. I know I'm doing a good job, kind of saving the air. That makes me happy. What happened next or the next year without knowing the whole kind of plan and to be honest, that's the main reason why I wanted to have you on the podcast is I want people to really understand the five-step, you know, five-year plan because once you understand it, you really know how much sense it makes. But when I first, you know, hopped on the the, the 2018 CrowdRise campaign, I thought, okay, well, so my money is just going to go to buying more of these bricks that doesn't seem very sustainable because I'm not going to do this forever. And if the farmers can't sell it and there's no actual value in this product, then what what are we doing? And it wasn't until I we sat down and you explained the whole process to me. I was like, this makes absolute sense. So the 2018 project is to actually start marketing these products. And it costs money to market, right? But we think we've got really good products. We've got these people who want to make the biochar. We can now take the biochar they're making. We can turn it into these products. We can sell them into the market. And if we can establish, you know, customers who think this stuff is great, who want to buy it, then next year, the idea is to go out and begin creating community-sized social enterprises, right? Because these are all really small farmers. I mean, we're not talking about convincing the guys who've got, you know, a thousand hectares, 
right? And have got big tractors and plow all this stuff under. No, we're talking about the really little guys who might have, you know, half an acre, right? And if they have a way of turning their half an acre of waste into biochar and making money, and everybody else in their village does, then we can bring hundreds of thousands of buy, I mean, tens of thousands of dollars into that village. And that village can then begin to really help itself grow itself. And as other people in the village see people making money doing this, they want to do it too. And so the profitability of biochar leads people to want to imitate and therefore to burn less and biochar more. But that's next year. If we can get that replicable model out there, then I think in five years, we're talking about thousands of villages and so 2017, proof of concept. 2018, demonstrate and build the market. 2019, demonstration of replicable model. 2020, replicate all over Thailand. 2021, right? Laos, Vietnam, China, Burma, go, 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 right? I love it. And it's, it's exciting, you know, and honestly, I, I think the, the way that you've planned it out is really genius because that first year, if you tried to do everything that first year, it would have been impossible. So the fact that the first year we basically just took, you know, the money that, that we, we donated and we said, okay, let's just give them these contraptions. We're not going to, you know, try to convince them to buy this contraption that they're going to get an ROI in the next couple of years. You know, we're basically going to be, we're going to use the support and the money to kind of jumpstart it, show them, hey, here's a machine, here's how to use it, and then once you produce it, we'll buy it from you. And I think that was that was enough. Yeah. You know, I really think that was enough. Um, and what's really great is biochar is actually super useful. Yeah. I think if you guys haven't heard of it, it's one of these kind of miraculous things where, in, so the first thing I actually heard was that you can use it as fertilizer and i i was like well you know how can you use charcoal as fertilizer it doesn't absorb everything and when i when i read that all you have to do is basically soak it in was it pig urine pig pee is the which is mu- free fantastic and you probably want to get rid of it anyways yeah you do <laughs> and, it, and it becomes a super potent organic natural you know, pr- pretty much free fertilizer. Yeah. Well, no, it's not free. You got to pay for it because I got to buy the biochar from my farmers. But you if, know, if the farmer but, is yeah. is producing it, the, their own biochar, right. they then can use they it for can free. do it. Right. I mean, this stuff really is truly miraculous because quite apart from all the good stuff that happens when you're making it, when you got it, by God, you can do a lot of things with it. And the first thing you do is you put it in your soil. I mean, you grind it up. And you've got this pure carbon. And you got to remember when it comes, right after it comes out of the kiln, right? It is absolutely pure carbon. It is sterile as a desert, but it has really cool qualities. First, it has 
billions of little holes in its surface. And second, that surface is, is electrically charged. Now, the billions of little holes means that it will absorb vast amounts of liquid, vast amounts of liquid. So if you put a bunch of this stuff into your soil here, where the soil is really hard clay, and where we're having real problems with rainfall because of the droughts that come along with climate change, your soil suddenly will hold a lot of water. So this can extend the period between waterings three, four, five days. So for a farmer, it's incredibly important. Now in the U.S., sure, you can use polygels. You can use fancy stuff. Around here, people can't buy food. They're never going to buy polygels. This is the poor man's solution. And this is a natural solution. A totally natural solution. The other thing you, those little holes do is those little holes are great bug condos, you know, microbes, not bug bugs, but, you know, microbes, right? And unless you have an active microbial colonies in your life, in your, in your soil, it doesn't do your plants any good, right? Because the soil is full of actual elements. It has zinc in it or copper in it or sulfur in it or calcium in it, but plants can't eat that stuff, right? So you need microbes to eat it and piss out, you know, nitrates and nitrites and, you know, all those sorts of things which plants can take up. No bugs, nothing for the plants to eat in the soil. But if you've got this little particle of biochar, now here's where that electro, electrically charged surface comes in. You put this stuff in the soil, and lo and behold, all those elements come and attach themselves to the surface. This is called adsorption, and they stick to it. And in six months, you've got a little ball of nothing but minerals. And I'll tell you, those microbes love it. It's like a little feeding station, a big buffet for bugs, you know? So they all come hang out there. They eat, they pee, the plant thrives. Everybody's happy. Now, the other thing that this stuff does is that all sorts of other chemicals will adsorb to the surface, including pesticides and all sorts of other toxins. So if you live in an area where you've had heavy metals fall from the sky because of you know, industrial smoke or people have used pesticides or whatever, whatever, the soil will be cleansed because it will all attach to the biochar and never go anywhere. It won't get into your water, won't get into your food chain. It's locked up forever. So this stuff is fantastic. I like it. So already we kind of heard three real big benefits as using biochar as a fertilizer. I mean, not only is it all natural, it's organic, you know, it's something that farmers can actually make themselves, yeah. uh, you know, ex you know, once they've set up this, this little contraption. Uh, the, what, was, what was the acronym for those machines again? TLUD, Top Lit Up draft ovens. And if you just on if you just google like make biochar or something like that, you'll undoubtedly get these things. It's basically a oil drum standing upright with a chimney on top. It's a really ugly sucker, but it works. That's great. So farmers can, you know, get these tea luds, uh, warm hearts can help them install and teach them how to use it. And with the biochar, it it just sounds like such a no-brainer solution to use as an alternative to fertilizer and 
you know, the absorption of absorbing all the bad stuff that you don't want either leaching out of your soil and getting, you know, washed into the ocean or washed into other places or going into your food. It just like it, it to me, it just makes so much sense. And, and that's what I like about it so much. And there's other benefits of biochar as well, right? What else can you use? use with- well, I mean, if you're living in a city, for example, I mean, you are constantly, constantly, constantly absorbing large quantities of particulates from automobiles, right? I mean, your, your tires throw off little tiny particles of rubber. And those little tiny particles of rubber then get encased in hydrocarbons to form aerosols. And they're really horrible for you. But a lot of them just, you know, sort of settle out on the surface of the road or next to the road on your sidewalks and so on and so forth. Biochar will grab those up. So one thing you can do with this, if you've got a grass median or you've got trees with a little square around them, you can sprinkle a lot of biochar on that and it'll grab them up. The other thing is, of course, when it rains, these all go down the storm drain. Well, where do your storm drains end up, right? Well, you don't know, probably. Probably they end up in the river. Right. So one thing you can do is dump a lot of biochar down the storm drains. And there's, when there's a big storm, all the muck in there swirls around and all the junk that has been sent down there because people dump all their old cleaning stuff and their old chemicals and their old paint and, you know, all of that stuff, which is toxic as hell gets dumped down the storm drain and it ends up in the sediment and it just sits there until a storm comes along and sweeps that sediment out into the river and then somebody drinks it down the way, right? So if you can capture it this way, if you can adsorb it to the biochar, you can really have an impact on water pollution. And just the easy way to think about it is think about your water filters, whether it's a Brita filter or a built-in one. It's carbon. It's carbon. It's, yeah. it's just activated charcoal, yeah. I guess, right? And activated charcoal and biochar are chemically identical. The difference is that activated charcoal is the same process up to the very end. And then you either spray cold water on it sharply to break open, fracture the surface so there are many, many more little holes in it, or you spray it with phosphoric acid, which does the same thing. Now, I don't want to play with phosphoric acid, and we got no cold water where we work. In fact, getting water at all where we work is really hard. So, But, you know, the deal is, if you want to achieve exactly the same effect, use just more more biochar. I mean, it works just as well. There's an organization just north of Chiang Mai here that makes world-class water filters for small villages. And you can go to their website, aqueoussolutions.org, and they will tell you how much biochar you need for how many liters per day of water you want to produce, you know. And the guy who set it up, Josh Kearns, is a grad student at, at University of Colorado, and he's the world's leading expert on this subject. You know, amazing stuff. I love it. So the product itself has tons of benefits. You know, the, basically the, the plan for this year is just to turn some of the kind of raw biochar, you know, that you bought from the farmers, not that they, they're starting to produce it, into something that people want to pay a bigger sum of money for because you can sell the biochar already now which you, you're already doing to right yeah people, local we're already farmers. selling it but you know we really need to have a value-added product which is going to generate enough profits that one 
our little organizations getting something out of this, but mainly so that we have the retained profits to start building these other sites. I mean, ideally, we would not have to depend on donations of others to do this. I mean, if we had deep pockets, if we were a big company, we could run this like a corporate social responsibility project and be self-funding. We're not. <laughs> we're a mom and pop shop, you know? So we have to do this bit by bit. But, you know, eventually each one of these little organizations will be self-sustaining. I like it. And that's why I'm excited to work with you guys and help you is because I see the long-term vision of it becoming self-sustaining because, you know, I think with every charity, it's, it, it feels nice to give, you know, that moment, but it's even nicer to see that what you gave really made a long lasting impact that lasted for more than, you know, that month or that, that year, because even though it's nice to give someone a fish to eat when they're hungry, it is a million times better to teach someone how to fish for themselves, especially if then they can start, you know, selling the fish as well and kind of growing, you know, their own livelihood and not just have enough for themselves, but enough for the village, enough for the community, and then, you know, make a big difference, especially with something like biochar that is natural, that's organic, and that is really helping the world in a, in a big way. Right. Well, it's helping the world in a big way that really started us down this path. I mean, the problem is that everybody likes talking about climate change. They like talking about cleaning up the environment. They like talking about, you know, raising people from poverty. But nobody's ever going to spend any money on it, right? It's just – it's. <laughs> Everybody views environmental projects as a financial black hole. All you do is spend money on it forever. Uh-uh, right? I mean, we want this to be something that farmers do out of their own private motivation, the same way you do what you do as a digital nomad. You support yourself, then your family, then others. Well, when people make biochar to support themselves and their family, they are also coincidentally cleaning up the atmosphere, cleaning up the environment and the air. You know, it's, it's everything else that their, their selfish action causes to happen. Yeah, and you know, honestly, that's the best way to do it is <laughs> because yeah. it, like, it's, it's really hard to, to convince people to do things you know, just to be nice. You know? But it's really easy to convince someone yeah, to do something. There's just not a lot of traction in altruism. Yeah, and the thing is, it's, and it's not sustainable. I mean, you know, but what you guys are building is sustainable, and that's why I'm so excited about it. So if people want to find out more, if they want to, to donate and you know, help build uh, – you know, th these tea lugs for these villages and these farmers, where, where can they, where can they go? Well, the first place to go is to the Warm Heart website. The website is www.warmheartworldwide. That's all one word. Again, warmheartworldwide.org. And if you look under what we do, you'll see the environment, and then there'll be all sorts of stuff about biochar and what we do there and so on. There's also a donate button, and we hope that you'll just go right there and donate like hell. Um, we are going to be working on the site to make it easier to find the donate to biochar directly. We are also running a Stop the Smoke 2018 campaign on crowdrise.com. Again, one word, crowdwise.com. 
And if you just enter Stop the Smoke 2018, that will take you directly to it. Very cool. And what I'll do is I'll put links to both of those in the show notes. This is episode 188 at com, And I'm also going to be helping them kind of redesign their site a bit to make it easier for people to find information, to donate. Uh, we're going to be, you know, I'm going to be helping them with some other kind of ways to get the word out there to help fundraise for, for a bit. Uh, but if you guys are excited and you want to help with the first stage, for 65 bucks, you can build a T-Lug. And you can already help get smoke out of the air directly. And what that does is that gets a farmer to start producing the you know the biochar to sell. And in stage one, we'll be using some of the donation money to actually just buy that biochar, the, the raw material from them, and then using the you know skills that that we've picked up in you know in producing physical products and creating value added products. You know whether we sell it on Amazon FBA or through right. a website. Of course, if you live in Thailand, you're welcome to buy the products. Come to the Warm Heart website and just hit info at warmheartworldwide.org. Tell us you're interested in buying some of the product and we'll arrange to get it shipped right to your doorstep. Yeah, I love it. And this is just the start. Uh, definitely check it out because this is an actual solution to stopping burning season, which then stops all this crap going into the air and you know, warming the environment in other places. So really, we're, regardless of where you guys are listening to this, this will make a positive impact on your life, not only this year and pretty much immediately, but also for your future, for your future children. You know, really, you know, really this is one of those solutions. Like, And that is why I'm so passionate about this. And this is why I'm donating both my time and my money into... You know, this project is because when we become, you know, when we you know, we become comfortable enough to take care of ourselves, and we have the time, energy, and skills, and money to be able to help others, that's when it's time for us to step up. And I know Chiang Mai has given me so much back. You know, the Chiang, you know, Chiang Mai in Thailand has given me so much. It's time for me to give some back now. So with your help, we can really make that happen. Go to warmheartworldwide.com. Click on donate or click on the biochar kind of drop down. Right now, it's a bit hidden. It's under what we do, environmental program, and then biochar. But we're gonna try to make that all a little bit easier. A little easier, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that, that's it. I, mean, I appreciate you being on the show. Any uh, last words? Well, just thank you very much, everybody, for listening in for all this time. And uh, we hope to hear from some of you. We hope certainly to. Uh, get some purchases from some of you and please pass the word on. There is nothing about this project which has to stay here in Thailand. I think that this is something that we could certainly do in Kenya, Tanzania, Ethiopia. This is something that would make a huge difference in southwestern China. There are all sorts of places around the developing world where this would happen and make a big, big, big difference. So please help us out. I love it. And for you guys who are in Chiang Mai, you'll see an immediate difference here. You know, already there's been a quarter million pounds of potential smoke that would have been in the air. And every year it's going to get better and better. And this really is one of the only tangible solutions that I have personally found. Uh, and I'm excited for you guys, you know, to be part of it. So definitely check them out. If you have any questions, let us know in the comment section or hit them up at 
warmheartsworldwide.org, warmheartsworldwide.org. And I'll see all of you next week. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Travel Like a Boss podcast. If you want to hear more, including the bonus, how to choose the perfect niche episode, join our mailing list at travellikeabosspodcast.com. See you next week. And remember, if you want to travel like a boss, you need to be your own boss. So start your online business today and start living the lifestyle you've always dreamed of.